I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and this is a super special episode. I'm so excited to bring you the first ever Vulgar History Presents. I don't know. I don't have a cute name for it, but it's an interview with author Alison Epstein, whose book A Tip for the Hangman is coming out real soon, um, February 9th, I believe. And it is a historical spy thriller. The characters in it include Queen Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, the main character is a man named Christopher Marlowe, a.k.a. Kit Marlowe. And basically, as soon as I heard that this book was being published, I was just like, can I interview you for the podcast? Because thus far, we've been looking at women's history, women's life. Christopher Marlowe is, if a man can live with a tits out energy, he absolutely did. This story has, as they say, everything we've got wizards we've got spies we've got murder we've got a woman bashing herself to death with a cage we've got possible faked deaths it's truly got everything you want in a vulgar history type story and so i hope you enjoy this interview with alison epstein so i'm joined today by alison epstein welcome alison thank you very excited to be here so you have a book coming out, and we're going to talk about other stuff, but first I want to make sure we talk about your book so we don't forget to talk about it. So it is your debut novel, and it's called A Tip for the Hangman, 
And can you explain what it's about for everybody? Yes, I can. Uh, it is a historical thriller that I'm describing as Shakespeare in Love meets James Bond. So if that appeals to you. Uh, it is a spy novel set in 16th century Elizabethan England about a contemporary of Shakespeare named Kit Marlowe, who somehow gets tied into Queen Elizabeth's spy network and has to stop an assassination before the entire country goes to war. Amazing. This is like everything about that. I'm just like, please. Yes. Thank you. Um, and you didn't even say, have, <laughs> I didn't even say what you didn't even mention the Mary Queen of Scots is in it, which is like, oh, I, I didn't. I'm, I'm already on board and Mary Queen of Scots is there. That's a bonus for the vulgar history crowd is there is a good long time with Mary Queen of Scots who I love to death. Oh my God. Amazing. And so this time period, I on purpose didn't. So we're, we're talking today about Kit Marlowe, AKA Christopher Marlowe. Yes. 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 And so I on purpose didn't read about him because I want you to tell me all these exciting facts and I can ask, ask all the questions that other people who don't know who he is can ask as well. Um, but I guess my first question, like we're going to go through his whole biography and stuff, but like, was he, so he's, I assume the James Bond figure in this. Yes. Yes. I would not say he's the the suavest or the coolest James Bond, but he is the most spy-y of all of them, if you will. Was he a spy in real life? The the general consensus is 98% sure, yes. It is one of those things where it's impossible to say for sure because they don't keep lists of everybody who was a secret agent because that makes it really hard to be a secret agent. But like most historians will say, yeah. He's almost, really spy. almost for sure. Wait, and so he's also a playwright, right? Yes. Was that yeah. a common thing to multitask in that way, to be a spy slash day job? Um, it was common to be a playwright and have a day job. Most of the time, your day job was not international espionage. I would not say that is that is common. It It's, I think I would say pretty confidently, he's the highest profile person that we suspect was tied up in Queen Elizabeth's spy network. It's kind of like if Quentin Tarantino was a spy. Like, it's a bad idea, you would think, if you're that famous yeah. in like, the entertainment industry to also be an undercover agent. But he made it work for a while. So set the scene. Christopher Marlowe is, I don't know what sort of information you have to share with me. Are we starting with like, he was born, like, do you have, do you know when he was born? A lot of times I don't know when people are born. I do, because... Um, he is, I believe, the first man that we are featuring on a feature-length episode of Vulgar History. And yes. so, therefore, we have more information. Wacky how that works. Thrilling. Oh, my God. That's right. I should say, yeah, this is our first ever man special. So I wanted to <laughs> explain to the listeners, like, it's not like it's 2021, and now this is a man history podcast. It's still not. But what I love about this story, or what I'm interested in learning about in this story, is, like, I've talked about women and all the, like, awful men who are awful to them. But Christopher Marlowe, I feel like, is a cool guy. So this is, like, a guy who's okay, special episode. Like, non... Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't... You're going to teach me a lot of stuff, I guess. But I feel I like... I sure will. And, he's a, yeah, he's a the spy, reason that, so. and the reason I feel like he is an interesting person to profile on this podcast, which, by the way, I love and am thrilled to be on here, is I think Kit Marlowe lived with tits out energy. He did not have tits, but he lived as if his tits were out at all times. This is the sense I I get. I feel like the story fits. Okay. No, that's the thing. So when I say I didn't research him, I did do some 
vague skimming just so I would kind of know like what time period are we looking at? And I did pass by um, like, you know, words that popped out at me, controversy, like scandal, like espionage. I'm like, okay, this is like, this is a story I'm excited about. Cause usually the men in the stories that I look at are like, and he was the Earl of whatever. And he married this woman and like, he got, then he became the Duke of whatever. And I'm just like, I don't care. This is like extraordinarily boring. This guy. Okay. So, Sorry, set the scene again. He is born in... He is born in February-ish, 1564, in Canterbury in England, which is like, if you go to London and then you travel for like 30 minutes on a train, you're in Canterbury. Canterbury, famous for the Canterbury Tales. Famous for the Canterbury Tales, for the cathedral, and I don't think very much else. Who's to say? I'm sure someone will tell me what else happened there. So we know when he was born because he was assigned male at birth. But was he also, like, wealthy-ish? Like, what was his family situation? He was not. He was the oldest son of a shoemaker. So he, I think his parents had six children total. And so he was very much working class family. Um, The only reason he ever really got out of his father's house and kind of made it out into the world of Elizabethan intrigue is he ended up getting a Fulbright scholarship to college when he was around about 18 or 19. And that didn't happen very often to people who were not the Earl of whatever Shire. Right. Okay, this is interesting to me. And so I think we should also explain, like, you clearly have information about him, which is great. Information is recorded about him. Unusual for this podcast. But you also wrote a historical fiction book about him. So you're going to have some answers based on facts and you're going to have some answers based on your story you wrote and what you assume and kind of invented. Both these are all good answers for me. I'm not being like, I'm not fact checking this. Like you can guess what you think, but so how to get a Florida scholarship, like that just seems like wildly interesting to me. Like how would that even happen? Did he have like a, like an older person who is like a mentor or like some, let's see, like how did he come to the attention of them to even, I didn't even know they had scholarships, frankly, in the 16th century. <laughs> they had a very, very few. And from what I can understand, it seems like they had some paid spots that would be open up in Cambridge or Oxford. And most of the time they went to the second son of this Duke and whatever And so there would be a waiting list for like exceptionally talented common students. So if the spot ever opened up, your county schoolmaster could kind of put your name forward and say, hey, this kid really knows what's going on. His Latin is amazing. You should send this to Cambridge. Wow. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just like the thought of like a waiting list in the 16th century. I'm like a waiting list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it gets to show you that college applications have always been terrible all the way through time. And I have to say, it sounds not too different from now. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So he was this like shoemaker's son and not even the oldest son, right? He was the oldest son. Oh, he was the oldest son. Okay. So that's probably why. Okay. I'm just thinking about, again, just him getting this attention. So like getting to university, that's his break, like into like the world and society. Cause like now he gets to like a big part of the university is getting to talk with these like rich people you wouldn't ordinarily hang out with. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you can make all kinds of connections when you're at Cambridge. Same as now. You'll start you'll start meeting people. You'll learn all kinds of, you know, academic things and then also wacky social things. And so he gets to Cambridge and he starts writing plays, we think, at this point. So like he's always been the artsy theater kid, which the artsy theater kid in me loves. Uh-huh. Um, 
But round about the end of his master's degree, we kind of get a sense from his academic records that things are starting to change for him. He is going on random unexplained absences from school. He's starting to spend tons and tons of money that a shoemaker's son does not have. Hang on, hang on. Is he a teen collegiate spy? Yes. He oh my is God. not a teen, he is 21, but okay. he sure is grad student international spy. This is like, okay, alias vibes, right? Yes. Okay. So what we assume happened, because this apparently happened a lot in these times, was that Queen Elizabeth's spy master, side note, best job title of all time, if you can mm-hmm. be a spy master. Yeah. His name was Sir Francis Walsingham. Mm-hmm. And he was always on the lookout for like, unobtrusive people who are really smart, who are really good at languages, who like had connections and could kind of like weasel their way into his spy network. Um, And so he was recruiting in Cambridge and Oxford a lot during this time, which, (laughs) which like, it's a good place to be if you're looking for a spy and you want to find someone who has no money, speaks seven languages and has lots of free time. Like, it's I a feel good like, place to go. and they probably also have student debt, like 16th century version of that. And they were just like, they just need work. Yeah. I mean, you're not, it's the same as now. You get out of college, you have a degree, you have no job. And a rich man says, would you like to be a secret agent? I'd probably say yes. That's the dream. Literally my dream. Okay. Truly, so he's, truly, so truly. he's, wait, wait, I have a question though, too. So you said he's probably started writing plays when he was at university. But wasn't, like, writing plays and being an actor, like, a super trashy job that people didn't respect? Yes. What I like to think of this as, he basically went to school, because in these days, if you went to school, you were either going to be a doctor of divinity or you were going to be, you know, a lawyer. It was very lofty professions. I think probably they wanted him to be a priest based on his, the classes that he took. And so why I love him is he just went to preschool and he says, no, I want to write plays about people murdering each other and then I will be a spy instead. And I respect that. I totally respect that. I love that he wasn't like, assuming like this is what his family wanted. This is like, he got this scholarship and he's like, and I'm out. Like, yes. thanks for the education. I'm going to go be a spy slash playwright, which is like trashy in this era. Yeah. You have to imagine his mother is sitting back at home like, oh my, my son, what are you doing with your life? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did he get a degree? Did he finish university? He did, but just just barely. Um, this is one of the reasons that we know for sure, well, for, for historical sure, that he was a spy is because he was mysteriously absent when he was supposed to like sit his end of year examinations for his master's degree. And so there was evidently this big scandal that, well, we can't let him graduate. He didn't take his exams. He's not here. And so um, Lord Burley, the head of the Privy Council of Queen Elizabeth, writes a note to his headmaster and says, (laughs) hey, he was doing some stuff. Can't tell you what, but if you could let him graduate, that would be a real swell. And that is one of my favorite historical facts of this entire story, because it is essentially like you're sitting at home and then the Secretary of State of the United States writes your high school teacher an excuse note and says, just yeah. give him an A. It's fine. It's like, you know, I know Allison missed <laughs> 50% of the classes this year, but like I, <laughs> the spy master, However... <laughs> um, please excuse Allison's absence. <laughs> she was doing something, can't tell you what, but the queen thinks it's important. That's yes. the best way to graduate. I, 100%. Yeah, exactly. And you didn't have to write exams. 
Amazing. I know. I mean, that's the dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So he must have been a good spy, I would think. Like, if they're yeah, going to send him on, like, a, you know, you'd probably try, like, one spy mission, see how it goes, and another. And if he was, like, going on all these different things, and to the point they're like, mm, please excuse him from his exams. Like, he was, like, a valuable spy, I would think. His skills were, were probably top-notch. I certainly like to think so. Like I said, this is me editorializing because our records get spottier in this part. But, I mean, being a spy in 1580s England is, like, that's not a casual time to become an English spy. Like these are pretty turbulent times for Queen Elizabeth kind of in the midpoint of her reign. I know we've talked on multiple episodes of this podcast about Queen Elizabeth's kind of militant Protestantism that she got from her dad. And so there are like all kinds of secret Catholic plots right now in this time period that are kind of popping up everywhere. And there's constant fear that one of these Catholic plots is going to right. overthrow so this Queen is like, Elizabeth. So. so you said this is 1580s? Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. So she's been the queen for a while. Like, she's, like, dug her feet in. She is, you know, but there's all these, all the people, yeah, all the people who they think should usurp her, take over. Yeah, so she's constantly under threat. So it would just be, like, and if he's a spy for her, then he's just trying to find, like, hey, fellow Catholics, like, don't exactly. you love the communion wine or whatever and then just like learn about all their schemes okay okay 100%. yeah okay yeah so and there, are, ask, there are a couple of yeah absolutely go right ahead oh no so i was just gonna ask like where, where does your book does your book cover how many what time period in his life um i pick up right before his first conversation with sir francis walsingham so right when he gets embedded in the spy network and i go through till the end of his life Okay. Which all fits in one book. <laughs> I was going to say, spoiler, that life, not long. No, no, indeed. Okay. So so your book starts with this, like, university era stuff. Yes. Okay. I mean, Absolutely. good. I mean, obviously, I feel like that's a great starting point. <laughs> I mean, I feel like half of the pitch here is grad student or back spy. And I'm like, yeah. I can't skip that part. It's my favorite part. And I really want to get to the dirtbag stuff. But and I'm sure we will. So he finishes university, and then what's what's next in his like life path? Yes, next in his life path is he shows up in London after he graduates, and that's fifteen eighty seven. I can remember all of these years because we're not working with very many years here. This is a very condensed story, mm-hmm. um, and he starts uh, writing plays. He kind of hits the ground running. It seems like the first play that he gets on the stage is the one that he started writing in college, Uh which respect. Um, So it's kind of like his thesis project. Absolutely. And what I love most about it is that his thesis was at the time, the most popular play in London ever. It was sold out every day for like five years. What play was that? It was called Tamburlaine, Tamburlaine the Great. It is an incredibly violent play about a man who is a shepherd and kills all of the kings in the region and then becomes king. And it's just lots of murder, but that was what the audiences wanted no, at the time. I'm into that. I feel like I've already told you before, my favorite Shakespeare play is Titus Andronicus. So I'm like very drawn to the like 16th century plays that are just entirely murder. And part of that is because I like imagining how they did that with props and sets in old times. Absolutely. And let me tell you, if you like Titus Andronicus, you're going to love Marlowe because the one thing that Marlowe knew how to do really well was murder somebody on stage. It is Amazing. just 
nonstop violence all the way through. I love it. I did. Um, I don't even, I was trying to remember this when I was getting ready for this interview, but um, one of the courses I did in university, I did some like drama classes and some English classes among all the history. And we looked at some other plays by like Shakespeare's contemporaries and just the way that they were like, whatever it's like, and then this happens and it's like, and then he cut off both feet and the head. And I'm like, that's your stage direction. Like that's your stage direction. Like, and as like a theater university student, I was just like, I want to mount this show. I don't know how I'll do it. Like, but this reminds me of, so Marlowe appears in the film Shakespeare in Love. Yes, he does. So this is most of what I know about him. So he's played in that film by Rupert Everett. And he's just kind of this like cool, seemingly older playwright who's like more successful than Shakespeare, who just seems kind of like he know he knows what's going on. Meanwhile, there's this other little kid in that same movie who's this little kid who's like, I want to write plays with murder. And he's like killing rats and stuff. Who is that? That's John Webster. Another another favorite of mine. OK, he's he is definitely younger than Marlowe and Shakespeare. He's writing in the 1600s. Marlowe is actually two months older than Shakespeare. They're okay. almost exactly the same age. So I won't get into my rants about Shakespeare and love. That is yeah, not yeah. what this podcast is for. For sure. But. For sure. But again, that's where most of what I know about Marlowe. So like just studying some plays in university, it's like, here's the Shakespeare plays. Like, let's all read the Shakespeare plays. Every English class is like, this is the Shakespeare play we're going to read. And then in some of the theater ones, it's like, and here's some other people. I'm like, oh, other people. There's other people. <laughs> and so I just kind of felt like I had this instinctual feeling that like Shakespeare was kind of like, like the sort of trashy one, whoever in like the soap operas of plays and Marlowe was kind of more like classy, but that's entirely based on in Shakespeare in Love, how he comes across in that one scene he's in, where it seems like Shakespeare's trying to write these like not great plays and he's like, oh my God, Marlowe. And it felt like a Mozart Salieri thing where Marlowe was just this like mm. way more successful. So I guess my question is, to turn that into a question, was Marlowe successful first as a playwright before Shakespeare? Yes. I think Marlowe was incredibly successful while he was writing and Shakespeare was kind of like doing the, the what I like to call the iffier plays during that time. He was doing like the, the Taming of the Shrews and the Comedies of Errors. And I mean, I love Shakespeare. I can't get through those. I find them exhausting. And so the audiences were of, like, well, they just want the murder. Like Marla's giving them what oh, they Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I want you to show me Tamberlane again so I can watch that woman beat herself to death with a cage. Like, wait, please show me that. Wait, is that, that's the thing that happens? Yeah, um, he murders her husband, so she gets so upset that she beats her own brains out against the bars of her prison cell. Wow. Okay, okay. I love so that's that what we're talking about. <laughs> Do you think his play had any secret spy messages in it? Um, I personally don't think so. What I, I read all kinds of social religious commentary into it for, for a variety of reasons, but I don't think the... I get the feeling that he was doing the spy work to kind of pay the bills to write the plays and the plays were kind of the thing that he was caring about. I don't get the impression that he was mixing business and pleasure very much. That's super interesting. Okay. So, cause there's a spy and there's a play and I was assuming he was doing the plays to just like buy the time and the spying was his passion, but you're right. It could easily be the other way around. So if he's just like, all I want to do is write my plays, but they keep sending me on spy missions. That's a fun tension. That's my interpretation because I feel like he's, he was so, so, so successful. He was like the JK Rowling controversy aside of Elizabethan England. It was, if you were going to see a play, is it a Marlowe play or is it somebody who's not as good? Yeah. So okay. I feel like he was putting a lot of his energy into that for sure. 
the trajectory of his life, and I mean, I know there's not a lot known, but just to go from like Shoemaker's son to be like, guess what? You got a scholarship. Guess what? You're a spy. And now you're the greatest playwright and everyone loves you. I'm just like, where's where's the downside to his life? Like, it's just up and up and up. You, you would think that. It sure started going well yeah. at first. But the wonderful thing about Kit Marlowe is that he does not know how to keep a low profile and he does not know how to leave well enough alone. Because he's still in his 20s, right? He is, yes. I think at this point, 20, 25, 26, incredibly yeah. famous, getting richer by the minute, connected to all of these people across Europe. He is basically holding the Queen's life in his hands. Right. And so you this would is think like... that would be enough. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about, you know, some celebrities these days who become famous at a really young age and they just don't know what to do with all the money and then they just, like, spin out of control. So I feel like he doesn't have that um, guiding hand. Oh, right, this is something else I vaguely saw when I was skimming. Was was he an atheist? That is one of the many entries under Scandal, under mm-hmm. his Wikipedia page. Yeah. Um, I There is a lot of rumor about his religious beliefs, which... I love given his job. His job is to root out Catholic heretics. Meanwhile, he over here is a militant atheist who doesn't care about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the uh, nefarious activities that they usually point to to say, yes, Marlowe is definitely an atheist, was his friendship with someone who was named the Wizard Earl which I think is an no, incredible name. I know the Wizard Earl. That was Do you know some, the Wizard Earl? That was the father of somebody who I did on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It all comes together. So yeah. anyway, he went to the Wizard Earl's black magic parties. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had their free-thinking atheist uh, dude bro party, which yeah. they called the School of Night, which is wonderful. Wait, wait, wait repeat everything you just said so he and the wizard earl would hang out and have like atheist parties that they refer to as the school of night yes and your book's not about that but is that in your it book? actually does not cover that because there is so much else that i did not have room for that but i, I feel wanted like to make sure people know like that's on the cutting room floor the wizard earl and the school of night sorry i'm just like of the wizard earl because i am a hundred percent sure that i read about him and his daughter is somebody who I did on the podcast. The Wizard Earl, Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. Let me just see. So I'm just like skimming here. Um, oh, no, his daughters were... Oh, Lucy, Lucy Percy, the lady spy. What? That's from season one. She was the one and then she went to jail and then she met Francis Howard in jail. And Francis Howard was like, here's how you can be like a titsert lady in jail and became like her jail mentor. Yes. Runs in the family. It all comes together. Okay, so this is great. So the, I feel like that's sort of like, I don't know. So spying, spying in general. And I know we don't know because records wouldn't be kept or saved. But like, was everybody a spy? How, how many people were spies per capita? <laughs> that's a, a wonderful ratio. Um, I don't think it was incredibly common, but I would say probably more common than now. Just given that, as far as I can tell, espionage is kind of the one way you get information in those days. Like, there's no hacking. There's no interfering with voting machines. Like, this is how you interfere with the government. Yeah. So it seems like we have a lot of names recorded of spies in this period, but... I'm not sh- I'm not sure what the ratio per capita is. I wonder if it's like people could do cuz I think then the way that he was a spy but then also a playwright like people didn't just have like one thing they did. People were like multi 
multi-hyphenate. So I feel like people could do some casual spying on the side and you also run an in and whatever, I don't know. And you also are a shoemaker. Like, I feel like there's just like spying was like a casual thing. A lot of people could throw on top of their other tasks, maybe for money. I don't know. I'm definitely not saying no. And I think part of it is just when the queen asks, hey, can you spy on this person? Like, you can't really say no to that. To say no to that, you're immediately suspicious. Right, right. I think if you're in a position to be useful, the queen and her council are pretty much going to make use of you. Yeah. Do you know about Afra Ben? The not. She's a lady writer who is also a lady spy. Um, and it's like, was that really even her name? Um, where was she from? But she it reminds me of what you're talking about because she was also like a playwright slash spy. And that was the first thing I was like, how is why are she, is she both? Um yeah. Anyway, so she was sent on various spy missions. She was also a very bad spy, apparently, but that just makes me like her more. Okay, so he's a spy hanging out with like atheist wizards. At the school yes. of night. Um, and quick aside for previous listeners to this podcast, his theatrical patron, the yeah. one who was paying his bills and getting oh, yeah, the yeah. right plays, was Ferdinando Stanley of no. previous podcast fame. Yes. Oh my God. Everything. This is part of why before we, I talked to you, I was like, what year are we looking at? Because I was like, which of my friends are going to pop up in this story? And I'm so excited. Ferdinando. Ha- oh my God. Ferdinando. Ugh, he was Lord Strange. So Marla was with was. Lord, Lord Strange's men. Yes, he was. He wait. was their star playwright. Wait, wait. And then Ferdinando Stanley was killed by Jesuits because they wanted him to take over from the Queen, but he didn't want to. Was that a coincidence? Who's to say? Mm-hmm. But like, that's all I'm saying is that's a really good playwright company to put a spy in. Like that man was suspicious, and so I have my beliefs about why he was there, but. Again, I am doing my conspiracy theory work over here. No, this is great. And this is like, honestly, okay, this is another question I had for you, which was like so much of the history stuff that I look at where it's like for a long time it was accepted as like, this is the narrative of like Anne Boleyn or whatever. And then you're like, oh, but this is all based on the writings of someone who hated her. So you're like, how truthful is this? So like, how truthful is anything? So what records do you have about his life? Did he, I'm assuming there's no memoirs you're looking at. So is it like letters or like where, what it? What are the sources that we know? Yes. Um, I mentioned a few of the sources earlier that are like notes that the Privy Council sent about, you know, he's over here, he's over there. Please excuse him from his exams. Please excuse him from exams. Yeah. Um, There are some other records of we had an agent in the field doing this and the name as they wrote it down was a variant on the spelling of Marlowe. And so we kind of suspect that might have been him. Right, because everybody spelled things like differently every time they wrote it. So that's not even a spy thing. That's just like- No, that's just, that's just, no one knows how to spell in Elizabethan England. Yeah, okay. It's a little bit sketchy, but there is one source that's kind of like the source of all of the Marlowe mythos. And it was kind of, and it's getting us right into the good juicy bit of the story. So I might okay. run us into that as please, well. Please, please do. Please do. Um, so we're fast forwarding a little bit. It's about, it's 1593 at this point, which is a big year in Marlowe times. Because it's when everything hits the fan, okay. essentially. Everything starts going bad. Wait, what's um, the thing? What's that show about um, behind the music? the show you know where they talk about like bands and then it's all like the band is doing so well the band is doing so well and they're like and then everything changed commercial break come back 
I feel yes. like that's where we are. Okay. And then 1593. Okay. He, Kit has just come back to England. He was randomly in the Netherlands for a little while. That's where, Afro ben, that's where Afro Ben was sent unsuccessfully to be a spy. Apparently, it is a good place to be an unsuccessful spy because this was his last international mission just, just <laughs> before this time. And okay. then he got super arrested for counterfeiting money. No one's oh. really quite sure why he was counterfeiting money in the Netherlands. But anyway, it drew a lot of attention to him because that's a weird thing to get arrested to be doing when you are a playwright and then you're just like i'm i'm in flushing and i'm making fake money yeah so he comes back um and the privy council at this point is kind of like we're not sure we trust this guy anymore we're gonna keep an eye on him he's kind of going rogue he's hanging out with the wizard earl he's running off to the netherlands we're gonna put him on probation and so he has to report to the privy council like it's either every morning or once a week or something like that. So he can't leave town. They want Wait, to know where he is. And this part is in your book? Does your book have counterfeiting yes. money in the Netherlands is involved? It sure does. Okay, good. It sure does. Okay. I read so many Wikipedia pages about how to counterfeit money, and I'm sure it's incredibly suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's back in London now on probation. And then this kind of, I'm trying to describe what this artifact is when it's released because it's kind of like the be the best analog I have for it is it's a 1590s diss track essentially it's like one of his enemies in the spy service releases what they call the Baines note his name was Richard Baines he releases a note and it's basically like 600 words of reasons why Richard Baines hates Kit Marlowe so it's this is like, like this is like a pamphlet level thing. Yes. Like, okay. And it's and it is just one wacky accusation after another. It's like I think it begins concerning the damnable beliefs of Kit Marlowe, who once said that Christ was a bastard and his mother slept with the angel Gabriel. And it's like <laughs> that level of wacky. Okay, but also Christopher Marlowe is super famous, so everyone like wants to read this, I would assume. Yes. Like yeah. there this is of interest to the people and also incredibly salacious and also incredibly dangerous. So it's not like if someone just like wrote a letter, like here's why I hate this guy who lives down the street because he kicked my dog or whatever. It's like, Hey, this, the most famous, like James Patterson, like here's why I hate James Patterson. He took the Lord's name in vain or whatever. I'm excited to hear what he was accused of. All kinds of fun things. Honestly, this is the one historical document that I say, Google it and read it because yeah. it is Amazing. And it's and called what? The Baines Note? The Baines Note. If you search for the text of the Baines Note, I think the British Library has it for free. Mm -hmm. And it is a good read. Um, so this comes out. And to make matters worse, around about the same time, another pamphlet comes out. This is the year of treasonous pamphlets, apparently. Yeah. Pamphlets and are like, honestly, since I started doing the podcast, I'm just like, I had no idea the history of pamphlets. Like, that's what there was. There, were, that's what you did. Like you can. That's where all the scandals lived. In pamphlets, everyone's just like making pamphlets. Okay, yeah. So there's this pamphlet that gets stuck up next to a church somewhere in London, and it basically says, "All of the nobles in England are draining the peasants and the working class for nothing, and we should rise up and kill them all." Which, like, bold words to put on a pamphlet. Yeah. Um, and it's technically anonymous, but whoever wrote this pamphlet signed it. Tamberlane, which is the name of the, the 
lead of Kit Marlowe's most famous play. Okay, can I just ask, I'm just going to predict what I think you're going to say, which is like, why would, if it was him, why would he sign it off as the famous character from his play? Like, come on. Like That is point one. Point two, I've read this thing. It's written like a fourth grader wrote it. It's like truly embarrassing. Yeah. So almost nobody believes that it was him. And if Tamburlaine was like such a famous play, everybody's seen it. And if yes. what was it about? It was about like a shepherd who kills all the kings, or what did you yes. say? So it's it's a good like peasant revolt play. Yeah, yeah. It's like signing this thing and then putting your name like Angel Ra or whatever, just being like exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then everyone's looking at Victor Hugo a little bit weird after mm-hmm. they sign the pamphlet like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay, then, so okay, so somebody, yes. so like two pamphlets in a row, like one being like, "This is why he's awful." The second pamphlet being like, "Proletariat, let's revolt!" Like signed, yes. not totally not Christopher Marlowe. And then okay, exactly. And then because all bad things come in threes, there is one more bad thing that oh, happens, no. and it's that uh, Kit's old roommate gets arrested. Um, like his roommate from where, college days. His roommate from like when he first moved to London, because like no one can afford an apartment in London. So like he shared a room with a guy. This is where um, I sympathize with you and your difficulty of Elizabethan names because this man's name is Thomas because of course it is. And his name is Thomas Kidd. He was also a playwright. I've heard of him as a kid, K-Y-D. K-Y-D, yes. He lived with Marlowe for like a couple of years. And so he gets arrested, interrogated, tortured in the Tower of London, because some like suspicious heretical atheistic papers were found in like among his items and so he was arrested because of that and he under torture blames Marlowe for right. those papers but I think we all know and I, I'll just say this because we need to say it it's like you can make anyone say anything under torture so like if they wanted to blame Kit Marlowe they could just like torture him until he blamed him like that doesn't Absolutely. necessarily mean there's yeah. I mean he also was hanging out in like atheist club central so it's not impossible that they were his but any confession under torture is pretty much a useless confession yeah all that to say all of this evidence is kind of starting to stack up making him look like he's perhaps more of a liability than he's worth this is like intelligence i'm just thinking of like in modern days you know it's like when so many celebrity scandals this is where someone's like i'm gonna take some time away to be with my family and they like go off instagram for a couple months like this is where he needs to do that but i don't know what the version of that in renaissance times is yeah yeah he definitely needs to take a hiatus and just like think about his just like his business <laughs> just, i'm just going off to rehab for unspecified issues just like yes yeah would have been a good time for that however what he does instead is he ends up going to a tavern just outside of london in may of 1593 and he meets with three other people who are involved in the intelligence service. Some of them are spies, some of them have been spies in the past. And they spend the morning together at this tavern talking about who knows what in private. And by the afternoon, Kit Marlowe has been murdered. He's been murdered? He's been murdered. Okay, so he was day drinking. Yes. And then with some other spy affiliated people, and then suddenly he's just dead. That is the great mystery of Marlowe's life, is his mysterious death. Okay. How, what was he murdered from? By? He was, uh, trigger warning for anyone who, like me, is upset by certain ways of stabbing. He was stabbed through the eye. 
died instantly. It's not but good. It's not good, but also I feel like spies would know that that's how you kill someone effectively. Yes. I get the impression that he was not the first person stabbed by whoever did this. Yeah, I don't think that yeah. that's not your, like, entry level. That's not an amateur <laughs> No. So he's hanging with some spy guys in the... Were there witnesses? Did people see this happen? Did it happen in the bar? Or was he just last seen in the bar, then suddenly his body is found? He was stabbed in, like, the taverns in the day were, like, half tavern, half hotel. So right, you right. drink in the bar, and you go back in the private room, and you're happy you're meeting. And so he was with these other spies in a private room at this tavern. And so we know he went into the room, and we know he was stabbed. And then, but we don't know exactly what happened in the altercation to lead up to that. Uh-huh. The excuse that history books give is that these four guys got into an argument over who was going to pay the bill at the tavern, and then they stabbed him in the fight over the bill, which sure is a story. Yeah, I don't buy that. That's not, no. you don't stab somebody in the eye over like who's going to pay the bill. I don't know. I feel like he'd stab them some up somewhere else, but the eye seems like very targeted you, assassination. That seems like you you break a man's nose for like yeah. stiffen the bill. You don't stab him in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this happens, and what's like there'd been this Marlowe like controversy. He's suddenly found dead. Like what? What do people think? He's like the super celebrity. Like and suddenly he's dead. Like what's what did the public think? I think the public was primarily mad that we're not going to be more plays. Tamberlane to colon. (laughs) Okay. Here's the thing. Yeah. This is not the point of the story. There already was a Tamberlane part two. He already wrote too fast to Tamberlane (laughs) for no particular reason. He knew his audience. Okay. Yeah. He sure did. He knew how to make the money. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you see in like plays that come shortly after his death, a lot more people start quoting Marlowe. So like the arts community is in mourning. Right. But like the church, pretty excited that he's gone. The crown and the intelligence network just quietly stopped talking about <laughs> we him. We don't know her. Yeah. It's exactly. Mariah yeah. Carey died, if that's what yeah. happens. It's, it gets surprisingly little attention in the press given how famous he was. At the same time, I feel like people being stabbed in taverns wasn't super rare. So it's like, oh, you stabbed. Oh, no. Well, you know, that happens. Well, people just get stabbed does. in taverns. Yeah. What you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah. And so what is his so so you said that the artistic community, like they started quoting from him and stuff. So how did he like I've heard of him if vaguely, like how did his legacy like sort of move on from there? Because there was so many playwrights, like so many people writing plays and no one remembers a lot of them, but he somehow was remembered famously. Yes. Uh I would say he has one play that kind of got held up like it it carries through when i say the name you'll be like oh he wrote that uh dr faustus oh which was like the original version of of okay so like sold your soul to the devil type thing okay yeah so like in all the cartoons you see with like the angel on your shoulder and the devil on the other like if it's bugs bunny or Kronk from the emperor's new group or whatever like that was him okay okay so that left his mark so tamberlaine was a big hit at the time but Faustus became sort of like more famous yeah. in his legacy. Wait, That's how, old, the one that, how old was he when he died? Like he was 30s? 29. Oh my God. Ugh, so young. I know. Makes me feel incredibly unaccomplished. Live fast, die young situation. The Kit Marlowe story. Absolutely. Did you consider that for Taylor? 
I won't tell you how many titles we went through, but Wait, that's up there. But actually, can I ask you too? So your book is called A Tip for the Hangman. Yes. What does that mean in the it, context of um, the book? In the context of the book, it has two meanings. And one of them is kind of the the international spy connection where you are getting a tip of information that's going to allow the hangman to kill the person who you've tipped. And the other thing is a fun historical fact that I love, which is when you yourself are murdered, not murdered, I'm sorry, when you are executed executed publicly. Thank you, I forgot the word executed. You are expected to give an actual monetary tip to the hangman for him doing the service of having killed you. Mm -hmm. So it kind of nods to both i am turning other people over to be killed and also things are not looking so great for me see end. i didn't i only thought about the giving money to the hangman i didn't think about the like tip isn't but now learning all this spy stuff it's like i see i see the double meaning what made you realize i could write a book about this like what interested you about history like was there one part where you're like wait this would be a fun story like what part was that yeah um i think what what caught me the first time I heard about him was in a college class that I took, which is very much the kind of class you were describing, which is playwrights who are not Shakespeare. And I think we did like a quick biographical lecture on each of the playwrights before we started reading their work in that class. And most of them were, this person was a bricklayer and wrote some plays and then died at some point. And then we got to Marlowe's biography and my professor was just like, so this guy, well, that was a secret secret agent um maybe a wizard and I, I was like okay so I would like to know more about the secret agent wizard who showed up in the middle of my syllabus and yeah. kind of from there the research hole just gets deeper and deeper yeah and so without getting into like spoiler territory although you did just tell us the story of his life which is also part of what you book is that's the historical fiction trap that you fall into right right but can you, what is the Mary Queen of Scots of it all? How does she come into your book? Yes, this is where I start using my artistic license. So please do. pretty yeah. much, yes, great. Because I love Mary Queen of Scots and her whole business where, and I know you have not done a Mary Queen of Scots episode yet, but I know the, you will. It will be like a 25 part episode. It's <laughs> fantastic it'll be my life's work but yes okay so toward the end of her life Mm -hmm. mary queen of scots is living in england under house arrest and she is scheming up a storm sending um coded letters back and forth trying to scare up an army through this like the king of spain to come and stage an invasion and overthrow elizabeth and that's happening at exactly the same time that sources show that Kit Marlowe got into the spy trade. Mm-hmm. And so me being a Mary Queen of Scots fan, I'm thinking this is too good of an excuse to like put them together. I kind of have to. Yeah. I yeah. feel morally obligated to. So in my book, um, this is probably not what happened in real life, but Kit's first spy assignment is to infiltrate the household of Mary Queen of Scots and figure out what exactly she is plotting. Is this the household of Bess of Hardwick or is it a different house she's living in at this point? I think it is a different one. I also have her in a few houses because Elizabeth kept moving her mm-hmm. around because she was acting suspiciously. Yeah. So There's one, the one where she lived with Bess of Hardwick. I feel like Hardwick Hall is probably the name of the house. Anyway, there's tapestries there that like she stitched Mary Queen of Scots 
And there's like things in that, and people are like, are there certain secret cipher codes by messages like in these tapestries where it's, or even just like, there's like a cat and a mouse and they're like, this is her saying, like she feels trapped. So just like these, like, even in her embroidery, Mary Queen of Scots was like not letting up. I love it. Oh, she was, she was scheming. She had her scheming dial turned to 11. And yeah. I love her deeply for that. So Kit meets her or he's just in the household? He, uh, he does meet her. Yes. That's exciting so for I mean, me. It's exciting for me too. But she shows up. So in terms of making it a thriller, so you're like, this is an interesting, like thriller, this is another thing. Like group book is like catnip for me personally, because it's like <laughs> thriller is my favorite genre of book. Um, and then all the subject matter is also interesting. But so looking at the pantheon of historical fiction, like especially about this Elizabethan era, there's a lot of like, I don't know what one would call it because i'm not going to say philippa gregory's books are not action-packed but it's very like traditional historical fiction like here's the story of a person's life and yours is like a spy thriller so is that what you always kind of wanted it to be from the beginning or did you do you at first think like let's do like a biopic novel just fact-based um the first draft of it started out a little bit more uh traditional fact-based but i think the more I learned about Marlowe, the less I wanted to write him a very traditional historical fiction book. Just spending so much time with his wacky, violent, terrifying, fast-paced plays, I would kept thinking, what kind of what kind of book would he write if he was writing a novel? Yeah, and I yeah. was thinking, you he would write a super high-stakes thriller full of murder. I think that's what he would want. Yeah. So it, it just felt like this is this is subject meeting form after a while. Yeah. No, and then even, like, the cover of your book, like, it doesn't look like the traditional historical fiction. Everybody needs I, to, like, Google the cover of her book right now. I'll put it a link in the show notes, obviously, to buy it. But, like, it's such a cute cover. It's, like, very distinctive looking, very different looking. I love it so much. I describe it to people as the uh, historical fiction version of the first Panic at the Disco mm-hmm. album cover. And it fills my heart with joy. They did an incredible job. Well, and I think it really sets people up for what the book is going to be like you know someone's not going to pick that up and be like well i want sort of like a fact-based biographical it's like no like this is going to be like a fun ride like you can tell from looking at the cover yes it is definitely based in fact but i do not let facts get in my way if they are inconvenient (laughs) that's another question i had so yeah so in terms of like writing this like there's a lot of you know you just heed absences from school like what was he doing no one knows so you could just like fill in those blanks pretty easily but were there some like other facts that you were just like this doesn't fit in my story so I'm just gonna like not include this like I don't even know did he have a wife and children like I don't know he did not uh we didn't even get into the scandalous homosexuality of mm. it all yeah yeah but why do I third. he was like that's another thing that I feel like I know about him which is that he was maybe gay but i don't know why i think that and it might just be because rupert everett played him in the movie no that is very much part of the marlowe mythos um it's part of the bane's note many of the accusations were connected to homosexuality um which was i think about on par scandalous with heresy back in those days so it kind of adds extra strength to it also um if you read through some of his plays that i i mean I I see it pretty clearly. So yeah. that's another thing that like historians pretty much are like, yeah, we assume. Okay. Uh, as far as facts that did not fit what I was trying to do, um, there's there's some evidence of actual espionage plots that Marlowe might have really been involved with instead of the Mary Queen of Scots one. 
like there's there's some evidence that he might have been in the north of France creeping around a seminary for a while, like looking for Catholic priests. And I just I could not make the the Kit Marlowe that I was writing a convincing secret priest. I, <laughs> I mean, he did study to be a priest until he like skipped all his classes. It's true. I, I got the feeling he'd have been very good at it or very convincing. So I was like, no, we're going to we're going to go over here instead. Yeah. Yeah. No, because, yeah, because I'm always reading so much history stuff. And then I'm like, oh, this would be a good story. But then there's a thing I'm working on right now where I'm just like, I need to, I don't know. Like, when I read historical fiction, I'm like, oh, sometimes, like, why do they change that? But now I'm, like, thinking of writing historical fiction. I'm like, oh, no, like, I to make this be a story, like, you need to change that. Otherwise, I would write a biography. Like, Right. But you've got sort of the, I don't know, just the timeline of it. It's like he goes to university, becomes a spy, and what, like, eight years later is stabbed to death. Like, you've got, like, a nice, tidy, it's not like this person lived for 50 years, and how can I make this a book? It's like... Yeah, you can do a pretty tidy start-to-finish timeline in the average length of a novel. And you know where the finish is going to be, too, because he's dead to death. Um, Yes, and I will say, just as a quick aside to any Marlowe listeners you may have, there are loads and loads and loads of rumors that Kit Marlowe did not, in fact, die in that bar fight that he in fact escaped and went undercover and started writing more plays under the pen name William Shakespeare. Okay, wait. (laughs) Which I think is a load of garbage, but that's my own personal bias. Wait, so there was that whole weird like, who wrote the Shakespeare plays? And to me, it's just like, probably this dude called William Shakespeare. Like, why are we thinking about this? But wait, wait, so him escaping, was his body found? A body was buried. Oh, man. He's a spy. I mean, a this is where there are all kinds of alternative history books where he runs off and goes to Italy and assassinates the Pope or whatever. And, I mean, you could you could follow that conspiracy as far as you like, but who's to say? Wow. This is, okay, I love the, like... I wasn't expecting that final twist of his very wildly interesting life. It's like, and then he was murdered. Or was he? Or was he? And this is where you can write a series. (laughs) His continued adventures under fake names. Absolutely. Just doing all these secret other spy missions. Seeing lots of people. Oh, we should score him. Just a sec. Um, Because I always forget this. I have it saved what the categories are. So it's always on a score of like zero to ten. The first one is the scandaliciousness. So that's like deliciousness of the scandals with which he was associated. So like, I know you've listened to the podcast, but it's like, you know, did somebody like conspire with 12 people to break into a prison and murder somebody? Like that's very scandalous. But it's like, did she run off with a guy? It's like, well, that's scandalous, but not as scandalous. So what do we have for scandal with him? Well, we have several secret spy antics. We're not sure exactly what, but we know definitely undercover international espionage. Definitely. There we, we have, way. and then going rogue, counterfeiting money in the Netherlands. Like the counterfeiting money is wild. And then in the Netherlands, like that ratchets it up a bit to like real weird in a way it, that it's, I enjoy. It's weird scandal for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, and then just the mysteriousness of like being stabbed to death in a bar fight, I feel is, mm, mm-hmm. this is tricky, you know, because- well, we're just weighing him on his own merits. I'm not going to think about him opposite somebody else. Like, scandaliciousness, a 10 for him, I feel, would be like he, I don't know, murdered Queen Elizabeth would be like a 10. 
Yeah, and I think we also have to score him with a grain of salt, given that men have more potential in history to kind of like to got do more stuff and to get away with it. True. So like, I'm giving him a little bit of a handicap here, and I'm thinking seven point five or eight. I'm gonna. Say, I'm also biased. Yeah, as an unbiased person, who all I know about him is what you just told me. I'm going to go, I'm going to give him a seven, I think, just sort of rounding it like close to what that you're saying, fair. but I'm bringing him down a bit because like you said, like he, I don't know, because with the women, sometimes it's like, look at what they were doing and compared to what other women were doing, you know, it's a lot, but for him, it's like, look what he was doing. And it's like, yeah, but like, okay, compared to what other men could do, like, to, like the world is wide. Walsingham, it's like, yeah, he was kind of like more scandalous than some, less than others, but seven, I think is very solid score. The next one is scheminess. So, and this is where I would ask you, how much do you think, like, he was doing, okay, like, let's assume that counterfeiting money in the Netherlands, that was all him. That was just, he had a side right. game, he was doing what he's doing. Writing the plays, that's all him. The spy stuff, I guess, like, it's hard for you to separate from your book, from, like, real life. But, like, how much of that do you think he instigated, and how much was he just kind of, like, dragged along to do it? Mm-hmm. Like, how much was he yeah. scheming in his spy work versus was he just like, oh, I have to do this spy work now? Yeah, um, I think the the meta schemes, like the overall what the spy network is trying to do, that is not his schemes. But I do think to be a good enough spy to get sent out more than once and to yeah. get relied on for that long, you've got to have some quick on your feet individual scheminess going on. So I think I think so. Yeah, he's playing the hand he was given, but he's he's playing it pretty well. I think so, and it's tricky because like, and with some other people on the podcast as well, it's like. I'm sure he had some amazing schemes and they were so good. We don't know what they are because he didn't exactly. leave a paper trail because he was schemy and he knew not to leave a paper trail. Right. What do you think for a number there then? I would score him higher maybe in scheminess than scandaliciousness, I think. Mm. Because, well, and also just like writing a play, see, knowing what the people like, then writing. That's true. That is a commercial scheme. Part two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like a 7.5 for scheminess. I support that. Okay. The next one, this is tricky. So, but did you, you did an English degree? I did. Okay. Because I didn't actually do an English degree. That was just like, I did some English courses. So his significance is not something with which I am familiar. What is, if he invented the angel and the devil on the shoulder though. That's what I'm saying. I think even if for nothing else, being the person who told the story of Faust in the way that we like intrinsically remember it, mm-hmm. that's pretty significant. Yeah. And I think he also is like the inspiration for so much of what Shakespeare did that like, I hate comparing him to Shakespeare. I think it's a cop out, but like you can definitely see Shakespeare was like, oh, this is what Marlowe did. Let me try that too. Oh, so it's interesting. Well, and that's interesting too. Cause you were saying that Shakespeare's doing his sort of like not so popular plays when Marlowe was like super sensation. Marlowe dies and Shakespeare's like, what if my plays are more like Marlowe? And then he becomes. Precisely. Okay, so that's like a stealth significance. Yeah, I think he's more significant than he appears. I think people yeah. tend to, to, he affects your literary life more than you think he does. Yeah, um, well, that's, yeah, because like Shakespeare, and I don't know, that would be a whole other conversation. Like, why is Shakespeare so famous? Um, still, <laughs> like, what happened? But um, yeah, it's it's a stealth sort of like it's just like his his like the little tentacles of his influence are all over the place. So I like him for significance. 
I think <laughs> we're just ratcheting up everything, but I feel like an eight, 8.5 significance. What do you think? Let's go with an eight. That sounds fair. Okay. The next one, I'm not sure how we can score him on this. It's the sexism bonus. Yeah. So when, when I do it for the, it. yeah. And I don't think nothing you've said made me think that he was dueling it out either. Like there's some men who I've profiled who are just like, I give them the anti-sexism bonus when I'm profiling them for being awful. Um, and it's just like, how shitty did they treat women? But you haven't mentioned anything about that actually, because he wasn't married and we don't know anything about his interaction with women. Frankly. I don't think I think pretty much the way that I read him is he tried not to interact with women pretty much at all ever and you know there's what? maybe a Good grand total him. of three women in all of his plays and they don't do very much so he just kind of minds this business I like that that's like me but the reverse <laughs> <laughs> so and I give him credit for that frankly because if he was I don't know like, he could have put, like, awful, you know, shrewish women characters in his plays. And he said that he wrote that scene where the woman character bashes herself to death with her own cage. She does. She's my favorite of the women that he writes. I think she's pretty great. But, yeah, I feel like that's, again, like... not a lot of competition. I don't know. The sexism bonus, this is tricky. So I think, I'm just going to say not applicable. I think that's fair. Sexism bonus, which means his score is weird. I'll have to, like, multiply it by something. But it's also a man score, so I don't know. Honestly, he's on his own scale, and I think that's about right. Why do we know that his nickname was Kit? Um, that is how a lot of other playwrights and poets talked about him. Like, there's the, I forget his name, the guy who wrote those nasty things about Shakespeare and called him an upstart crow or whatever, he called Marlowe Kit Marlowe. And so we're assuming that that's like, that's what his friends called him. Okay. I like that as a nickname for Christopher, but also it's like if everyone was just spelling everything randomly, you could just kind of make up your own name, I guess. That's true. Very true. Call so when, whatever you like. When does your book come out? What's the date? It's February? February 9th, 2021. Mm -hmm. um, it is available for pre-order now, if that's a thing you are interested in doing. Um, you can find pre-order links on my website, which is just alisonepstein.com or on my social media profiles where I waste my entire life. I am Rapscallison, like Rapscallion with an S on both Twitter and Instagram. And is there an audiobook of your book going to be coming out? There is, and it sounds amazing. Yeah? Well, I was just thinking, because this is like podcast people are listening. There might be people who like to enjoy books by, by listening to them. Is the narrator a man or a woman? They found um, a man from Britain who has the most perfect voice I've ever heard. Yeah. So I highly recommend the audio version for podcast listeners. Oh, that's wonderful. Actually, I want to ask you about that too, because you're American and you were writing about oldie times England. So in terms of like, I don't know, slang or just like how people talk, like how did you get a handle on that? Um, I kind of split the difference and... Um, made the artistic choice that I wanted the book to feel a little bit more modern in language and style than super historically accurate. So I was kind of able to fudge things a little bit. I did spend a lot of time with things like historical thesauruses, which tell you what the first time a word was used mm. in the English language and lots oh of synonyms. God. And my copy editor had many opinions, but it was a whole process. That's like a nightmare. I'm just thinking about that. Like, or even just a metaphor it's like, well, what was the first time somebody ever said 
I don't know, skin as white as snow. You're like, oh, shit, it was 1925, you know, and you're like, damn it. (laughs) I tell you, I had several things in the in the draft right before it went to print. My copy editor circled the metaphor and she's like, this is a reference to an Edgar Allan Poe story. And it's like, oh, no, it's 1580. He hasn't been born yet. I can't use that metaphor. That's crazy. Yeah, to walk that line, because you've got to like, I don't know, I I can see the different directions and you're like right in the middle of it because it's like super historically accurate where I'm like, I don't tend to like reading books like that where everyone is just like milord all the time. And I'm just like, oh, oh, kill me. And then there's ones if you go into the like, oh, what's the, I don't know, completely like um, Bridgerton, where it's just like, are they playing Ariana Grande on a string quartet where you're like, okay. (laughs) So like, you could just be like, don't care. Or you could be like, care so much. And you're like in the middle and making that line. That would be intense. It's a, it's a tricky line, but I, I really like the line that we ended up drawing. And if we can get a string quartet to play Ariana Grande, like in the audiobook, that would be great. I would love that. Well, and having a British, an actual British person reading it, that's interesting too, to see like how does it sound <laughs> a British person saying it. Yeah, it's definitely a good um, stress test. How does it work? Yeah. So Christopher Marlowe, if you had one thing that, you know, if someone didn't know about him or had only vaguely heard about him, like what's one thing that you think they should know about him? Um I think I would split it into two things. And the one thing you should know is that he played an absolutely enormous role in the way that we tell stories. He is a huge force in English literature based on the influence he had on other people. And second fact, his life was absolutely like batshit insane. And he got himself murdered for making terrible freaking choices. So you can be both incredibly important and also an absolute dumbass at the same time. I think that's a wonderful point to lead to <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> and I feel like I got both those points from this conversation with you as well. I honestly didn't realize he died so young. I just assumed, I don't know. I don't know. Like, that's just like yeah. a whirlwind. He's just like, I'm a shoemaker's son. Now I'm a spy. And now I'm dead. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was your whole life. <laughs> live fast exactly well thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun i truly hope that this recording works and i'm able to post this (laughs) i hope that too so all the information about allison and her book are in the show notes for this episode and i truly encourage you to look up the cover of a tip for the hangman which is a gorgeous cover and i would also suggest you look up just google image search Christopher Marlowe, because the one portrait that seems to exist of him, he's got the most spectacular hair. Truly gorgeous. I feel like he may have invented the pompadour hairstyle, as well as the indolent devil on the shoulder. So this has been the Vulgar History Podcast. You can find me on social media at Vulgar History on Twitter, Vulgar History Pod on Instagram. Um, My Patreon is at patreon.com slash Writer, where I have some other episodes if you like hearing stories about men's history um i have this so this asshole spinoff podcast is on my patreon there all the other links are in the show notes etc i strongly encourage you to try and get your hands on a copy of allison's book which you know hopefully your public library will have it lots of different ways to access it it sounds like such a great wonderful book i look forward to reading it myself i'll talk to you all next time i promise there's a new season of this podcast coming out soonish soonish that that's vague enough i think but 
Just remember to keep your masks on and your tits out. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.